0: you sappy music hey there fighting for the faith podcast listener just want to remind you at the top of the program here that fighting for the faith is listener supported radio you know no the music isn't working kill the music yeah sorry I see other guys who use sappy music I, you know. Bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, April 4th, 2011. Oh, where to begin today? Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You can trust God's Word. Um, As far as human beings are concerned, keep in mind, every every human being is by nature sinful. And that means uh, they have a... um, a bent in on themselves tendency uh, the uh, the way the ancients talked about it they used the word concupiscence look it up it's a pretty interesting term um it's this lusting after this chasing after a sin and sin manifests itself so many times we think of sin we think of sins of the flesh we think of things like you know uh, adultery uh, fornication uh, homosexuality uh, stealing if you would uh you know things of that nature and and truly those are sins but sin is not limited to just the things that we do to each other sin also manifests itself in false belief in unbelief in uh, refusing to bend the knee to god's word and and insisting that uh the sinful ego and its reasoning and rationing somehow can stand over scriptures and dictate which parts of the bible are true and which parts are not and then you know and then of course to shunt what by the scriptures teach through new revelation direct inspiration things you know the holy spirit speaking to you directly or you you know receiving information from angels and things like that so because of the fact that the church is full of sinners and truly it is in fact jesus came for sinners if uh, if you are if you're not a sinner you don't need jesus not at, like at all um you can just turn off the program i mean this this program's not going to help you at all uh because if i mean if you're not a sinner and uh, then you don't need a savior you don't need jesus you're on your own you know uh, we'll see you on the day of judgment and uh, best of luck to you but uh, because the church is full of sinners, as it should be, uh, the, the issue is, is sin being addressed in, in all of its manifestations? And one of the manifestations that sin uh, takes on is the manifestation of false belief false theology, false doctrine, false ideas, and all the time this happens using God's name, okay? We talk about blasphemy. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. When we talk about blasphemy, we're talking about people taking God's name, his brand, and slapping it on their false belief, their false ideas, their false doctrine. That's what it means to blaspheme God, to take his name in vain, and that happens um well over and over and over again in america's pulpits yeah the the biggest place where you're going to see uh people taking god's name in vain is not on their cell phones no the the greatest place where the, where god's name is blasphemed is in pulpits over and over and over again as christostom said the the road to hell is pla- paved with the skulls of priests and the um, and the skulls of bishops are are the signposts, the markers on the way there. Anyway, so yeah, we, you know, listen, this job never ends, you know. And uh, you know, when I'm long gone in in my grave and waiting the return of Christ well, I'll be with him in this presence, but, uh, you know, waiting to come back and be resurrected from the dead. uh, There'll be other people who are going to have to take this uh, task on, and God will raise them up to do the same. Why? Because the church is the church militant here until Christ returns. You know, we're always, always, always battling sin, death, and the devil, and it just, it doesn't end. And so, uh, unfortunately, we live in one of those times when just the craziest things uh, go said in the pulpit and and. Well, because of political correctness and other things, um, you know, to point it out is well impolite and um because I'm a pirate, yeah this is pirate Christian radio, um I don't care about being impolite. yeah, I know that what I do steps on people's toes and it upsets them and uh, and you know what, they need to be upset. That's the way I you know the way I look at it is if if you're upset because I've taken your pet little doctrine or your little sacred cow that you've created and mercilessly slaughtered it here on the air. Yeah, I can understand that that would make you upset, but that needed to happen. So anyway, <laughs> well, you're off to, you, you kind of came out of the shoot punching. Yeah, I've been, I spent the whole weekend reading, and oh. <laughs> one of those times, homework, homework, homework. Anyway, so um, spent the whole weekend uh, reading, and good stuff I've been reading, but I, I don't even want to get into that. Let's talk about what we're going to talk about in today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Um before we do that um have any of you all noticed that um William Tapley has been very quiet lately The last two videos that he's posted on his YouTube channel one was a a, a St. Patrick's Day potluck um and uh, you, know, you know like a dinner or something and then the other was of his Catholic priest preaching on the uh, passage of the woman in the well He has been mysteriously quiet so, I, you know, I, I keep checking in going, you know, when are we going to get the latest from William Tapley? And, I, you know, I, it just makes me wonder if maybe he needs to, like, resharpen his uh, you know, co-profit pencil because, I mean, remember, he said that World War III was kicked off, well, last year with that whole Korean incident. And, you know, here it is, you know, it, we're well into April now. Well, I mean, it, it is the 4th of April, 2011, and still no major army movements uh, going on in World War III. None, you know, And the whole Libya thing, you know, um, nowhere near Korea. In fact, I'm not even sure if North Korea is involved in the Libya thing. In fact, I would probably suspect not. But, you know, anyway, you know, just so it just makes me wonder if uh, William Tapley has had to go back to the pencil sharpener, stick his co-profit pencil into the pencil sharpener. You know, maybe it had gotten dull. Maybe his co-profiting skills had had you know, well, kind of fizzled out. So I'll keep an eye on the situation, see if anything new comes out from William Tapley. But, you know, the last time I, I played a William Tapley segment, I mean, I couldn't figure out what he was saying, you know, even using colored markers, uh, butcher paper and uh, duct tape. It just it didn't work anyway. um, Let's see here. So today we got uh, Patricia King. Uh, We've got a Patricia King update, and uh, she's going to be talking about the release of entrepreneurial gifts. I had no idea that you know, the Holy Spirit had entrepreneurial gifts to give to the world. Uh, we'll be listening to her uh, on that. We've got Rob Bell. There's, well, actually, this isn't quite a Rob Bell segment. Somebody posted a, uh, a satire video. Uh, you remember the original video that uh, Rob Bell put out? uh in you know to kind of tease that the uh his book love wins was going to be hitting the market well somebody has put together what i consider to be probably one of the more brilliant pieces of satire i have ever seen or heard and i'm going to be playing the audio from that and um and just sitting back and basking in their glory because wow they did a great job oh and the folks over at emergent village have finally bared their fangs uh (laughs) <laughs> I'll give you uh, details on that in a, in a little bit, and then um, through uh, through uh, fighting for the faith's uh, secret uh, hidden channels of uh, communication and uh, and our ability to intercept communicate. Yeah, 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 Is it on Crete? There's a signal ops station there in the Mediterranean and uh it well here at uh, pirate christian radio we have a highly sophisticated signal ops operation going on here and we're able to intercept communiques that other people just may not actually have access to and uh, we've intercepted a communique from the president of the mormon church uh to Rob Bell that we'll be passing along today so uh yeah and and you know keep in mind this this is all part of our service to you and uh, cuz you know here at the uh, pirate christian radio pirate cave Um, located somewhere uh, in uh, in the Midwest. Nowhere near any great bodies of water either, which is kind of disappointing. I mean, what's the point of having a pirate cave if you're actually not near, like, one of the oceans or major seas of the world? But... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, we are land-based pirates here at Pirate Christian Radio. But uh our signal ops has intercepted this uh, this uh, communique that we will be passing along to you. And uh then well, let's see here. Um then we'll pro- I'm 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 trying to be realistic. I'm trying to be realistic today. The only other thing we'll have time in the first hour after that is uh Dr. Michael Horton's latest piece in uh Modern Reformation Magazine entitled Missional Church or New Monasticism. I'm going to be reading that because it's just brilliant and it needs to be passed along to you. And then our sermon review today, I have a great, fantastic, specially good gospel sermon for you from across the pond. Uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley preaching on John 11. Um, I'm still having a hard time getting the bad taste out of my brain um. Uh. From the, listening to Tara Gentry's sermon on our April Fool's edition of Fighting for the Faith, who was that bad? Holy guacamole, was that bad? Um. So, um, I actually spent a little bit of time on this exact same passage. Uh, but Pastor Charmley, I'm going to be playing an entire sermon from Pastor Charmley on John chapter 11, entitled "The Resurrection and the Life," and he just does a fantastic job of pointing us to Christ and Him crucified for our sins. And uh, this is, is the perfect antidote for the, uh, the Terra Gentry sermon. And those of you who are behind in the podcasting, I, I understand that you know we do uh, many hours of radio here at Fighting for the Faith, and that many of you are still maybe a week to two weeks behind. Uh, by the time you get to this, this will be the thing that you listen to immediately after Terra, the Terra Gentry train wreck. And I, I'm putting this in here as a means of giving you something that you can hang on to. Uh, and to floss your brain out, like you know, like I'm doing. So, anyway, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Uh, need to remind you all, fighting for the faith is uh, well, it, it's a dangerous program. It's been known to actually uh, decrease productivity. And, in fact, there's a standard warning that we need to play for fighting for the faith that we do from time to time. And so let's do that here.
1: Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain
0: Yeah, I I, strongly recommend it. And, of course, if you would like to wear fuzzy bunny slippers, no problemo. Uh, Keep in mind, uh, it needs to be cool in your neck of the woods. Otherwise, it will detract from your listener experience. And, of course, we don't have a problem if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, The reason being is is that uh, the biblical prohibition is actually against drunkenness. Jesus himself did drink. Um, and that being the case, you know, drink responsibly while listening to Fighting for the Faith. That's about all I can say regarding this. So with that, let's dive into the program. Here we go. Did you know that the Holy Spirit apparently has entrepreneurial gifts to bestow upon people? I had no idea. I'd never saw this in the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, the lists in the New Testament. But apparently Patricia King has uh, discovered a brand new set of lists that includes entrepreneurial gifts being released. Uh, Here, I I better let her explain to you. Here's uh, Patricia King.
2: I have such a witness in my spirit that God is releasing entrepreneur giftings. He
0: Really? Wow. You, you might want to get in on this. Now, I'm not sure where you go to get one of these, but, you know, listen in. It
2: is. And you might be receiving one. I'm seeing it everywhere. There's stirrings of ideas and creativity in people's minds. There's going to be new businesses and new inventions formed because God's pouring out his spirit on this. There's a real lot of oil on it. And so...
0: A lot of oil. So if you have an oily... Uh... <laughs> An oily idea to uh, to start a new business, or you might be receiving one of these brand new, uh, newly released uh, gifts, uh, entrepreneurial gifts from the Holy Spirit. I am not familiar with this. And by the way, I got to tell you all, um, I am a chronic entrepreneur, and and anyone who knows my entire adult life uh, knows that I have been part of uh, starting up companies of my own or being part of company startups for pretty much my entire uh, corporate career when i was in the corporate world and pirate christian radio of course is an entrepreneurial event uh, in and of itself you know this is a business that i started but um and the one thing i can tell you is is that um that entrepreneurial itch that entrepreneurial thing yeah that involves a, a lot a lot of risk and um in fact i would almost say that um being somebody who has been a chronic repeat entrepreneur um, that uh, some might uh, might make the case that it's a form of brain damage. Um, and I obviously suffer from that. It, it may not actually be a gift. It could potentially be a curse. I mean, because entrepreneurs are the type of people that really don't feel like they're alive unless they're risking everything they have on some risky business venture and some crazy idea. And so, um, and you know, and of course, uh, what is it? The 80% of all businesses fail within the first five years of starting up? I mean this this may not be actually a blessing this could be a curse so i'm as somebody who's been down this road i understand uh that uh, what she's saying you know <laughs> you know, this might seem like a gift but you know th- but then talk to your wife in a couple of years she might say that wasn't a gift that was uh, well anyway let's listen to more patricia king
2: and so you might already be operating in that entrepreneur anointing right now, which is, you know, the starting up of new businesses. The
0: entrepreneur anointing. I had no idea that this was a, a, a gift of the Holy Spirit.
2: Lance now teaches us how to take the seven mountains that we need to possess and occupy them. And when you...
0: <laughs> what did she just say? Hey, hang on. Hang on a second. got to back the tape up just a smidge because I don't, I, I don't know what she was talking about. Hang on. She
2: says how to take the seven... –
0: Hang on. I go farther than that. Hang on. Hang on. I, I really want to make sure I get this.
2: And so you might already be operating in that entrepreneur anointing right now, which is you know the starting up of new businesses.
0: So here all along I've been on. I've been I've been operating in the entrepreneur anointing.
2: Lance Wall now teaches us how to take the seven. Lance Wall never heard of him. Seven mountains that we need to possess and occupy them. And when you start a new business, wait, wait, wait! Somebody's
0: telling me I need to take, to possess and occupy seven mountains. Um, isn't the uh, Babylon mentioned in the Book of Revelation
2: built on seven? No, <laughs> no,
0: I better check my Bible on that.
2: It gives you an opportunity to reach people that would have never been reached, maybe through a church meeting or uh, through a local church program. But they might come into your store or into your business to do business with you, and then you can shine as a light before them. Oh, so many Christians are being launched into the business arena. I
0: Just like rockets.
2: I can see it, and I know it, and they're going to be effective in it. And God wants to bless you. If you are feeling the stirring or the witness on this, I just want to say God wants to bless you and your ideas and your business. And so I'm going to pray for that entrepreneurial um, anointing to be released upon you today.
0: Oh, man. I hesitate to listen to this prayer, but God admit, I'm kind of hooked. I, <laughs> I want to see where this one lands.
2: I also have two books i want to feature oh of course oh man you know what this reminds
0: me of you remember the uh the movie um uh what is that a christmas story you know and, and you got ralphie you know sending away for his little orphan annie decoder ring and he finally—I mean, it, it takes a while for it to arrive in the mail—and you could, you know, he keeps going to the mailbox over and over and over again, you know, to get his uh, little orphan Annie decoder ring. And finally, it shows up in the mail. And I, I mean, this was one of those moments in the movie where there's this great tension and sense of excitement. And so, I mean, he—he's got his decoder ring, and he's finally able to listen to the segment in the Little Orphan Annie. Uh, radio serial, um, and at where they 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 prattle off the codes, and so you know he 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 diligently writes this all down, and you know A three B seven L nine. I mean he's he's just writing all this down, and then he you know and then he runs into the bathroom and he goes into decoding you know mode and you know he's decoding this and and his, and his and of course he's in the bathroom and his little brother has you know has to use the restroom and he's pounding on the door "Ralphie let me in let I got to go ah, Ralphie" and his mom's yelling at him and and he, he he's he's doing everything he can to focus on decoding this important message and and the message said "remember to drink your Ovaltine" <laughs> he basically said A lousy commercial? I mean, it was just a... So here we got the uh, entrepreneurial gifts apparently being released, according to Patricia King. But now we're into a lousy commercial. And we got two books, apparently, that are going to help us on this.
2: For you, that might help you. One of them is called Help God I'm Broke. Not that you are or anything like that. It's just that in the society we're living in, sometimes the lack of funding is what keeps people back from fulfilling their dreams. God wants you to have more than enough because He's the God of more than enough. And in that book, I share the secrets of the Word of God that we have learned through the years, proven Word that we have learned in the area of finances, to believe God, to do great and mighty things in the earth, and to have the...
0: How much do you want to bet that that book is just full of of out-of-context passages that,
3: well
2: vision to fulfill it that book will help you tremendously and also in the zone how to live in the blessings of god wait a
0: second in the zone how to live in the blessings of god whoa how weird that she's got a brand new book on this and we just reviewed a sermon from a secret driven pastor in florida on the blessing zone and that rick warren on this you know when he kicked off his
2: decade of destiny talked about Pretty much the same thing. Weird. Odd. At all times. And you can proclaim that over your business. Proclaim it over your... So
0: you can proclaim the blessing zone over your entrepreneurial business that you were gifted with through this oily anointing. It <sighs> just sounds uncomfortable.
2: Entrepreneurial ideas. And as you determine to live in that blessing realm... Blessings will come upon you and overtake you in your business, okay?
0: Wow, can you imagine being overtaken by blessings? <laughs> Sign me up.
2: Okay, so those are two tools that will help you. In the zone and, and help God I'm broke. now.
0: Yeah, I, I need to get Ralphie going. A lousy commercial?
2: I want to pray for that entrepreneurial gifting to come upon you. Father, <sighs> in the name of Jesus. Oh,
0: man, I normally don't let her pray for me.
2: All right, I'm gonna to try to endure it. Here we go. I pray for the anointing that destroys yokes, removes burdens, and releases your kingdom essence to come upon all.
0: Oh, this is <laughs> this is worse than I thought. <laughs> what are you praying? Holy
2: cow that are watching here in the area of entrepreneurship, Lord God, that you would birth in them new businesses that in the... Oh,
0: great. I don't want any new businesses birthed in me. My wife has had enough of this, uh, this stuff.
2: Body of Christ, there'd be an explosion of successful...
0: Now, you don't want to use the word explosion when you're talking about an entrepreneurial event.
2: Yeah, th- that's bad. That's business owners. And those that are already operating in this, Lord, I pray for enhancement in Jesus' mighty name. woo God bless you, and God bless you in your business, too.
0: Remember, uh, <laughs> <laughs> results may vary. <laughs> what on earth? Uh, this is an example of somebody that's just making stuff up and slapping God's name on it, you know, <laughs> about that and uh, talking about making stuff up and slapping god's name on it here is a uh, here's audio from a recently released released video entitled robbed hell uh by c-a-s-t pearls presents see i don't know who they are uh but uh i'll i'll put a link up to this on my facebook wall and uh, on uh, uh Twitter tonight, it, uh, you know, so you, you, you won't you won't have to miss this. But uh, here's the audio from it, and the guy who who is uh, presenting here has a pair of Rob Bell glasses, and he's got a he's got the beard hair thing going on. Remember the uh, the um uh the program on Discovery that was on a few years ago, uh, American Chopper, and uh, and uh, you had the one brother who was. Yeah, who who you know who was bearded and really wasn't all that well let's just say wasn't a hard worker this guy looks just like that guy from American chopper anyway um here's robbed hell here we go
1: several years ago we had a karaoke night for international students at our church. We had a lot of different nationalities represented and they were singing Abba and Garth Brooks and of course, those Germans love the David Hasselhoff hits. At one point, this guy gets up and he starts singing Imagine by John Lennon. And a lot of the students found it really inspirational. You know, they were getting up on their feet, waving their cell phones, and just generally going crazy. But not all of them found it all that compelling. After the song, this one girl gets up and she goes up to the singer and says, Reality check, John Lennon's in hell. John Lennon's in hell? He is? Somebody knows that for sure and and feels compelled to share that with the rest of us? Really? Do we really believe that the path to eternal life is narrow? Will fornicators, adulterers, sodomites, thieves, and drunkards really burn in hell forever?
0: (laughs) Oh, this is is the best satire I have seen uh, of Rob Bell's original video. (laughs) Wow, will thieves and drunkards and <laughs> adulterers and sodomites really burn in hell? Uh, well that that is what the Bible says. Will God only have
1: mercy on some, on those who have been blessed with eternal life? If that is the case, then how do we escape this judgment? Do you have to say an incantation, know the password, or know how to moonwalk, or be really good at the Rubik's Cube, or be free of all food allergies, or have good posture, or or know how to roller skate backwards, or know how to do wax off ninja moves like me. How do we become one of these saints? And then there are the other questions that start popping into your head. Like, could God make a rock so big that even He couldn't pick it up? That's a tough one. Or what is the sound of one hand clapping? Even more perplexing, what is that one hand clapping for? Maybe it's for John Lennon. Or how come when men go through a midlife crisis, some of them get a Harley, when others get a recumbent bicycle? What makes the difference? How can I tell the difference between a crazy person just talking to himself, or someone talking on his Bluetooth? And how come I can't have a cafeteria-style chocolate milk dispenser in my fridge? What would be so wrong with that? And then I start thinking, I know I'm a pastor and all, but I could make a lot more money puzzling over silly questions than I could by preaching actual answers. And I think that's why a lot of people want to have nothing to do with the Christian faith. It keeps providing answers when it's a lot more fun to puzzle over these silly questions. You see, life is like one big, infected, pus-filled zit of despair. And the preachers of the Christian gospel come along with their words of sin and death and hell and repentance and mercy. And they want to pop that zit with their hard words. But what I'm saying is Why not just talk like an idiot and wrestle with contours of meaning and just plaster over that nasty zit with the cover-up of shallow thinking? Why not? Wouldn't that be much more beautiful? This is the good news. No one has to know about the zit.
0: (laughs) Oh, that was brilliant. Oh, man. I've I've watched a few times. Ah, like I said, I'll put a link up to that on uh on my Facebook um, wall as well as my Twitter stream. And it'll be up on my blog Letter of Mark uh, by the end of the program. Wow, very interesting. Okay, we're up on our first break and uh when we come back, uh we're going to talk about that uh that communication that we were inter- able to intercept from our signal op station here in uh in our pirate Christian cave landlocked somewhere in the United States uh Midwestern states. Um, uh, from the uh, president of the Mormon Church to uh, Rob Bell, we'll be passing that along. And then we're going to be uh, listening to, as I read, uh, the latest from Dr. Michael Horton entitled Missional Church or New Monasticism. So you don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, at com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. It's like what not to wear for
3: theology. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church.
0: All right, we're back. Warning, shallow deconstructing questions and silly banal thinking do not Christian doctrine make. need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. If you don't already partner with us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you uh, all of you who support Fighting for the Faith, we could not do what we do without you. And, of course, if you don't already support us but are going to, let me thank you in advance for for doing that because we could truly use your help. And I think by the end of this week we're going to have our uh, announcement regarding uh, crew membership and what that's all going to entail. So stay tuned. I've, I've got details on that coming up. All right. Uh, moving along. That's right, our signal ops station at uh, located somewhere landlocked in uh, the American Midwest. The Pirate Christian Signal Ops Cave has uh, been able to intercept and decode a transmission, uh, a letter that was sent from uh, the president of the Mormon Church, the LDS faith, they're a cult, and to, uh, to Rob Bell, and I, I want to share this with you. All right. Enough of the signal op stuff. Thank you. All right. Um, <laughs> Here is the 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 communique that we intercepted uh, from the office of the 10th presidency. Thomas S. Monsoon uh, from uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, to uh, dated March 31st, 2011 to Rob Bell, Mars Hill Bible Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dear Mr. Bell. I've just completed reading your newest book, Love Wins, and I have to say that I'm impressed by its theological accuracy Uh, with the revealed truth from God. As you know, we have taught for a long period of time that there is a period of evangelism that occurs after death where man may be uh, reconnected to Heavenly Father. I'm overjoyed that as an evangelical you have come to realize this truth. I am also pleased to see that you have come to realize that all people will be going to heaven in some form and at some time. This is something that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been teaching for many years. I believe that you and I may, uh, and many of the same have some, many of the same beliefs about Heavenly Father and His desire to bring comfort to people on this earth. My purpose in writing you, uh, to you is to call you to partner with us in furthering this message that we share that Heavenly Father's love will return all people to himself. Together, I believe that we can crush the toxic belief in hell that has existed for thousands of years because of the great apostasy. I hope that you will take seriously this offer as we are working toward a common goal. Sincerely, Thomas S. Monsoon, the 10th um, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <coughs> <coughs> Yeah, I just want to let you know that you can um, find this at the uh, blog for Karm, um, the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry uh, blog.carm.org. Uh, look it up if you would like more details. Um, and it's important to note that that this um, well, you'll you'll get the details on the le- on the letter when you get there. Yeah, but we did intercept that, you know, from our signal op station here. Christianville, it does make a point. Anyway, all right, moving along here. Um, from Modern Reformation Magazine. Headline reads Missional Church or New Monasticism. And uh, I'll be put, sending out a link to this on my Twitter stream as well as my Facebook wall uh, sometime uh, early this evening, so be looking for that. Michael Horton writes, Some of us remember the Tears for Fear song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, yet the mantra today is more about changing the world than ruling it. Lots of younger Christians are tired of spiritual consumerism, and evangelism pitches about inviting Jesus into your heart so that you can go to heaven when you die. There has to be more to Christianity than soul-saving There not there something in there about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, about a new creation? Don't we sing joy to the world anticipating the blessings of Christ's kingdom extending far as the curse is found? Nevertheless, a legitimate question can be raised as to whether this newfound interest in creation redeemed is still guided by a paradigm that owes more to monasticism than to the world-affirming piety of the Reformation. Medieval monasticism was divided between those who prized the contemplative life, spiritual ascent to heaven through private disciplines of the mind, and those who gave priority to the active life, spiritual ascent through good works, especially for the poor. Francis of Assisi, in the Franciscan order named after him, emphasized the latter. First, today we see a revival of contemplative spirituality— It is a traditional evangelical emphasis on personal piety, discipleship as inner transformation through spiritual disciplines. Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline from 1979 introduced many evangelicals To the medieval mystics and contemplative writers, from the divine conspiracy to the great omission reclaiming Jesus' essential teaching on discipleship, Dallas Willard has repeated this call to discipleship, inner transformation through the spiritual disciplines. Willard presses pastors to ask themselves, quote, "'Is my first aim to make disciples, or do I just run an operation?' Discipleship has lost its coinage, Willard judges with this insight, quote, Discipleship on the theological right has come to mean preparation for soul winning under the direction of parachurch efforts that had discipleship farmed out to them because the local church really wasn't doing it. On the left, discipleship has come to mean some form of social activity or social service from serving soup lines to political protest to whatever, The term discipleship has currently been ruined so far as any solid psychological and biblical content is is concerned. Horton then continues: Whether in the form of soul winning or social work, evangelicals are far too activist. They need to seek inner transformation through spiritual dis- disciplines, especially solitude, silence, and fasting. These, Willard says, are the keys of the kingdom. He writes, Quote, "I almost ha- I almost never meet someone in spiritual coldness, perplexity, distress, and failure." who is regular in the use of those spiritual exercises that will be obvious to anyone familiar with the contents of the New Testament. When asked to identify the discipline that you think we need to be exploring more at this point, Foster answered, solitude. Here's a quote from him directly. It is the most foundational of the disciplines of abstinence, the via negativia, the evangelical passion for engagement with the world is good, but as Thomas Kempis says, the only person who's safe to travel is the person who's free to stay at home. And Pascal said that we would solve the world's problems if we just learned to sit in our room alone. Solitude is essential for right engagement, says Foster. Second, Horton now continues, Second, we can observe in evangeliz- evangelicalism today a more Franciscan active life emphasis on true discipleship as social transformation, especially in caring for the needs of the disadvantaged among us. The spiritual disciplines and inner transformation are not completely left behind. In fact, many advocates of this model, especially in the emergent-slash-emerging church movement, recognize the impact of writers such as Foster and Willard. However, the prayer labyrinths, chanting, Celtic crosses, candles, and journaling are all geared ultimately to create community more than solitude and to propel the community into witness through service. Leaders in the circles like to quote that line attributed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. Let me point out a fact here. It's been proven that Francis never actually said that. Moving along. Horton says, for all of their differences, the similarities between these two forms of monastic piety are as evident today as ever. Both contemplative spiritual disciplines and active emergent writers tend to blur and merge command and promise, indicatives and imperatives. That is, there is a strong tendency to identify the gospel with what we do rather than what God has done for us and the world in Jesus Christ. We are active agents more than beneficiaries and witnesses of God's reconciling work, building his kingdom through our efforts more than receiving a kingdom that expands through preaching and sacrament. Willard offers his own translation, more like a loose paraphrase of the Great Commission, I have been given, say, over all things in heaven and, and earth. As you go, therefore, make disciples of all kinds of people. Submerge them in the Trinitarian presence, and show them how to do everything I have commanded. And now, look, I am with with you every minute until the job is done. <laughs> wow, that's Willard's trend. paraphrase of the Great Commission. Good night. Willard thinks the real problem is that there is too much emphasis on grace and justification. If there's anything we should know by now, it's that the gospel of justification alone does not regenerate disciples, says Willard. Wow! Willard believes that the heart of the gospel is inner renewal and that we are transformed in our character by, quote, carefully planned and grace-sustained disciplines. It is not so much through the gospel that the Spirit transforms us as it is through our own determination and effort. Quote, what transforms us is the will to obey Jesus Christ from a life that is one with his resurrected reality day by day learning obedience through inward transformation. Quote, Jesus is actually looking for people he can trust with his power, says Willard. Wow. Similarly, Foster complains that an emphasis on God's grace has paralyzed the pursuit of inner transformation. Where scripture teaches that the most important, most real, and most lasting work is Christ's objective work in history for our salvation, Foster writes, quote, the most important, most real, most lasting work is accomplished in the depths of our hearts. The work, This work is solitary and interior. It is the work of heart purity, of soul conversion, of inward transformation, of life formation. Much intense formation work is necessary before we can stand the fires of heaven. Much training is necessary before we are the kind of persons who can safely and easily reign with God. Wow. (laughs) So, yeah, you notice as as I continue to read these quotes, I'm blown away by them. These are wild quotes. Holy guacamole. Although the uh, the emergent movement reflects a more communal emphasis on social transformation, it shares the medieval Anabaptist and pietistic emphasis on deeds over creeds. Brian McLaren explains, quote, Anabaptists see the Christian faith primarily as a way of life, focusing on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount rather than on Paul and doctrines concerning personal salvation. More than proclaiming Christ's finished work of reconciling sinners to the Father, the focus is on completing Christ's redeeming work of social transformation. Tony Jones, another leader in this movement, relates, quote, In an emergent church, you are likely to hear a phrase like, quote, Our calling as a church is to partner with God in the work that God is already doing in the world to uh, cooperate in the building of God's kingdom. Trying to anticipate reformed objections, Jones notes, many theological assumptions lie behind this statement, although the idea that human beings can cooperate with God is particularly galling to conservative Calvinists who generally deny the human ability to participate with God's work. According to McLaren, being missional means that we, that we encourage Buddhists, Muslims, and Jews to become better Buddhists, Muslims, and Jews as followers of Jesus' example. It is not what we proclaim, but how we live that transforms the world. McLaren writes, to say that Jesus is Savior is to say that in Jesus, God is intervening as Savior in all of these ways, uh, judging, naming evil as evil, forgiving, breaking the vicious cycle of cause and effect, making reconciliation possible, teaching, showing how to set uh, chain reactions of good into motion. There is no mention of Christ bearing God's wrath in our place. In fact, no mention of the cross having any impact on the vertical God-human relationship, quote, "'Then because we are so often ignorantly wrong and stupid, Jesus comes with saving teaching, profound yet amazingly compact. God, God, Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength,' Jesus says, "'and love your neighbor as yourself.'" And that is enough. This is what it means to say Jesus is saving the world, says McLaren, although Jesus called the summary of the, this summary the law. For McLaren, it becomes the summary of the gospel. You know what, though? This doesn't end, but I interject here. Over and over again in our sermon reviews, it's not just the emergents who confuse the command, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. They confuse that as the gospel. That is not the gospel. But it's not just the emergence who do it. It's the seeker-driven. Guys, it's all of these these churches that are, quote, trying to be missional or seeker-driven or whatever that continue to put out the law as if it's the gospel. It's, it's utterly amazing to me. Anyway. Horton continues, he says, first, quote, living the gospel is a category mistake. By definition, the gospel is news. Euangelion equals good news. You don't do news. You do law and you hear gospel. Second, the specific content of this good news is the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ's saving life, death, and resurrection, we are beneficiaries of this action, not active participants. Scripture certainly teaches that we live in view of God's mercies in a manner worthy of the gospel. We profess and so and so forth. However, it represents our lives and good works as the fruit of the faith created by the gospel, not as part of the gospel itself. Third. The Scriptures teach consistently that faith comes through the proclamation of the Gospel, not through good works. Christ himself was not arrested and arraigned because he was trying to restore family values or feed the poor. Even his miraculous signs were not by themselves offensive, except as they except as they were signs testifying to his claims about himself. The mounting ire of the religious leaders towards Jesus coalesced around him making himself equal with God, see John chapter 5, verse 18, and forgiving sins in his own person directly over against the temple and its sacrificial system, see Mark chapter 2, verse 7. In fact, At his trial, Jesus was charged by the Jewish council with announcing the destruction of the temple when the high priest said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus answered, Quote, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the of power and coming with clouds of heaven. With that, the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned Jesus as deserving death. See Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 64. Jesus was never charged on the grounds of trying to bring world peace Quite the contrary, Jesus' opponents never included a revolutionary blueprint for improving world conditions among the indictments against him. In fact, his mission was an utter failure for those who saw him as a leader of political revolution. He will return in glory to judge, to deliver, and to make all things new in a global political kingdom of righteousness and blessing. However, between his advents in the space of history for repentance and faith. Nor were Jesus' followers indicted before Jewish and Roman tribunals on the charge of building meaningful community and living the gospel. They were persecuted for proclaiming the gospel. In a letter written to Emperor Trajan about A.D. 112, Pliny the governor of Bithynia, central northern Turkey, explains the elements of of their subversive worship. Number one, here's what Pliny the Younger writes. One, about hymns Jesus sung as part of the early Christian worship— prayer to God through Jesus and in, in Jesus' name, and even direct prayer to Jesus himself, including particularly the invocation of Jesus in the corporate worship setting, calling upon the name of Jesus, particularly in Christian baptism and in healing and exorcism, the Christian common meal enacted as a sacred meal where the risen Jesus presides as Lord of the gathered community, the practice of ritually confessing Jesus in the context of Christian worship and Christian prophecy as oracles of the risen Jesus and the Holy Spirit of prophecy understood as also being the Spirit of Jesus. Pliny was concerned about the rapidly spreading faith in Christ, as we see in his complaint to Caesar that the pagan temples were almost deserted, and as a result, the enormous economic trade in the various cults and sacrifices was suffering. What stood out to Pliny, however, was the intractability of these criminals All they had to do in order to be sent home freely was to curse Jesus and offer incense to the emperor, yet this they would not do even up to the moment of their execution. Throughout the New Testament, believers are said to suffer specifically because of me, Jesus said, and because of Jesus' name. See Matthew chapter 10, verses 18 and 22. This charge of blasphemy indicates not only the central charge of their opposition, but also the central conviction of the earliest Christians, Jesus Christ as God and the only Savior. The Romans accused the early Christians of atheism and of undermining the civil religion by refusing to participate in the cult of the emperor. Roman senator and historian Tacitus relates... Quote, an immense multitude upon acknowledging they were christians was arrested on the charge of hatred of the human race yet these martyrs even used their trial as an occasion to articulate explain and defend the gospel so the law tells us what god requires of us the gospel tells us what God has done for us, precisely because the gospel is not about us, but for us. There is community deeper than any natural bonds or affinities and a wider impact than occasional ministry projects. The gospel is the announcement that a life has has already been lived perfectly for us surrendered for us and taken back up as the first fruits of the new creation believing this good news then we offer ourselves not as sacrifices of atonement but as living sacrifices spreading the aroma of Christ see second corinthians chapter 2 verse 15 we live obediently in view of god's mercies romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 the central mandate of the Great Commission is to proclaim the gospel to everyone. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith is expressed through love and good works, but it does not come from them. Peter says that we are born again through the living and abiding word of God, and this word is the good news that was preached to you, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 and 25. Our lives may attract people to or repel them from the word of the gospel. However, Dan Kimball Dan is simply wrong when he, like Jones above, invokes St. Francis' advice about a wordless preaching of the gospel, saying our lives will preach better than anything that we can say. Ironically, When we are seeking Christ rather than a generic social and moral impact on the society that we could have apart from him, something strange happens. A communion emerges around the Lamb, drawing people together from every tribe, kindred, tongue, people, and nation into a kingdom of priests to our God, Revelation Five, verse nine From a justifying and sanctifying communion with Christ that they share together, there emerges a foretaste of a genuine peace, love, and justice that can orient our ordinary lives and animate our activity in our worldly callings. The Great Commission is a specific mandate with manifold effects. To see the church's focus as, focus as delivering God's forgiveness of sins to the world is not due to any platonic soul-body divide— Many of us were raised in churches that were interested in soul winning rather than saving the world. Emergent folks are right to point us toward the wider horizon of God's redemptive purposes. Reformation theology, however, has always generated a piety different from left behind end time scenarios. Christ has already redeemed the world, securing blessing as far as the curse is found. Yet only when He returns with His kingdom, uh, with this kingdom uh, be consummated. For now, it is inaugurated and expands by proclaiming the Judge's forgiving, justifying, and renewing grace to the ends of the earth. Ironically, emergent theologies share uncomfortable similarities at this point with the prosperity gospel. Both are right in their expectation of Christ's universal reign and blessing, peace, justice, and love beyond the reach of sin, death, and sorrow. God cares as much for the body as for the soul, but both movements jump the gun thinking they can usher in the consummation of this kingdom by their own action. We can make things better in this passing evil age, but it's still this passing evil age rather than the consummation of the age to come. Doctors cannot conquer death but they can be instruments of God's common grace in delaying it. Deacons were appointed in the churches to care for the temporal needs of the saints, even though the ministry of word and sacrament and discipline bestows every spiritual blessing in Christ. We can fix the roof of our fellow image bearers, even if they are atheists, but we cannot give them a secure home beyond the ravages of poverty. That is what it means to be salt. It preserves things from decaying as quickly as they might. The salvation... Christ has won for us is not just going to heaven when we die. It isn't a matter of merely saving souls. We will be raised bodily at the end of the age and the whole creation along with us in Christ's train. Yet the second act awaits Christ's return. Quote, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans chapter eight, verse 25. Now I'm going to pause there and I'm—you know what? If you want to read the uh, the rest of this, you're going to need to read it online. So uh, d- take a look at my Twitter stream or take a look at my Facebook wall, and I'll I'll put, post a link up to this with today's edition of Fighting for the Faith so that you can read the rest of it. But this is f- just powerful stuff in this article, and it's spot on. Missional Church or New Monasticism by Michael Horton. All right, if you would like to email me regarding anything— that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, Who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation.
2: You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
3: This is the air I breathe. This is the air.
0: Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash chief. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. we got a good sermon lined up for you today. For those of you listening via podcast who just listened to the uh, Tara Gentry debacle and her... I mean, can you believe it? I mean, she waxed eloquent for thirty-five minutes about the television show lost and then apologized for reading a whole chapter of the Bible. I mean that thing was a train wreck. Oh, Ay. Yeah, yeah. Let's cue up our good sermon review music here. the bad and the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon oh man this is just brilliant stuff christ centered focusing on the cross like you wouldn't believe anyway the name of the sermon is the resurrection and the life by pastor Gervase Nicholas Edward Charmley the only pastor that i know that has four names Anyway, yeah, he is uh, one of the pastors there at Bethel Evangelical Free Church in Great Britain in Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent. Grab your Bible. He's going to be reading the Gospel of John, chapter 11, I think verses 1 through 44, and I don't don't need to do it. He does a fine job himself. In fact, you know what, I'm just going to, let me just stop the music (laughs) right there, and we're going to dive into this sermon. It is, it is just, it's wonderful. It's it is the perfect, perfect a- antidote for uh, what we heard, uh, in, well, last, l- the last episode of Fighting for the Faith, Tara Gentry. This is the exact polar opposite. Here is Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley. Well, here we go.
4: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the gospel according to John and chapter 11, John's gospel, chapter 11. we follow as follows on from Jesus having a second time to leave jerusalem because of persecution and because the jews jewish leaders there sought to kill him because he said that he was god john chapter 11 now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister said to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was, then after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you were going there again, Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world, but if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. And they thought that he was speaking about taking the rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, was called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had been already in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way, and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come, and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, or was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house, and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly, and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had have been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus came again, groaning in himself, to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. He has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the the stones from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who would die came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, "Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary, and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs, If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider it expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation not only for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained the disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they saw Jesus and spoke among themselves as he stood in the temple. What do you think that he will not come to feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. We trust God's blessing to rest on the reading of his holy and precious word. Our text this morning is found in John's Gospel, chapter 11 and verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? These are comforting words that are often spoken at funerals, and quite rightly so. The funeral believer, it is right to say what Jesus said after the death of this believer. I am the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. That is the great declaration of Jesus into this situation of mourning, into this situation This household has been fractured by the death of Lazarus. Death is this terrible reality in our world. The reality that we cannot avoid. We can try, people do. But we really cannot avoid the reality of death. That unless the Lord comes first, every one of us here present shall die. The reality that is born witness to by cemeteries and graveyards, by the obituaries column, the obituaries pages in the sentinel, for death, is a vast reality in this world. In days gone by churches were always surrounded with graveyards in which the great and the good and the not so great and the not so good were laid to rest because everybody dies. Death is the last enemy says Paul. Now Jesus came into the world as the Messiah. The deliverer promised by God. And we talked about Moses, if few words about Moses, and the children. And Moses is the, the picture, if you like. He is the deliverer of the Old Testament. But he's only looking forward to the man, the prophet like Moses, who would come, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, to deliver his people from their enemies and that's what the Jews were looking forward to but they got the enemies wrong they thought only in terms of the Romans only in terms of national independence they thought of deliverance in terms of Judas Maccabeus and his men fighting the Syrians, they didn't think in terms of deliverance from death and from sin, and you see Jesus is a greater deliverer than man can imagine. Man thinks in terms of liberation from tyrants; doesn't think of the great tyrant sin. Doesn't think of death and the devil as that from which we
0: are delivered. But by- Amen. Got a pause there. He's right on. Jesus de- delivers us from sin, death, and the devil—the greatest tyrants that humanity faces. The emergent church, when they talk about sticking it to the Caesar man, that somehow Jesus was dying on the cross in order to show people that buying into imperial framing stories is somehow a, a bad thing, and they think that you know that the great, the great evil that uh, that Jesus was conquering was Caesar or the you know empire hogwash the great enemy that we all face is sin death and the devil those are the great enemies Uh, mm, great stuff pastor charmley
4: this is what jesus came into the world to do and so we see in this first section of the chapter from verse 1 through to verse 44 first of all we have sickness we have a sickness then we have sorrow and then we have a great and a wonderful surprise So we have the sickness. Jesus has been forced to leave Jerusalem because after he said that great and wonderful truth, I and my Father are one, after he confessed that he is God, they sought to stone him because they thought that he was a man making himself God and not what he really is, God making himself a man. And so Jesus had gone away to where John the Baptist had been baptizing. Many miles away from Jerusalem, at least a hundred miles away. And then this, this news comes from Bethany near Jerusalem. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. He whom you love as a brother is sick. John tells a lot about Jesus' love for people. He speaks to himself that the disciple Jesus loved, but we find also that Lazarus was a man Jesus loved as a brother. So this was a man who believed in Jesus, a believer, who was sick. And seriously so, you don't send the messenger a hundred miles if a man's got a mild cold. You send a messenger a hundred miles if a man is liable to die. And you see the world is a place of death. But what is the cause of death? So you have to go further back, not individual causes of death. There are many illness, injury, and so on. But for the great cause that death came into the world to begin with. And death came into the world by sin. God warned Adam and Eve, our first parents, that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. And they disobeyed, and they ate, and they sinned against God, and so they died. And all their descendants since are sick unto death, finally. Not a matter with any human being of whether they will die, it's a matter of when. For all must die. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not only is there the sin of Adam, that there are individual sins we all have sinned ourselves and by so doing we have put our, our men to Adam's sin we have consented to it and all therefore die because of Adam and because of sin and yet Jesus says of Lazarus this sickness is not unto death But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, God's disciples thought this meant he'd get better, he wouldn't die from the sickness. They thought of a temporary sickness. But Jesus is speaking of a temporary death. He would die. But he would be raised again to the glory of God. Disasters and death is the greatest disaster whether an individual or whether hundreds or thousands in Japan at the moment. It is a disaster that people die, and yet God is glorified. In the disaster, we know not how, with all disasters, but we know this, that it will finally be used as an occasion for the glory of God. And this sickness would be an occasion for the glory of God First of all because Jesus would show his power over death but secondly the Son of God would be glorified through it. Now when we read of Jesus being glorified we are not to think in John's gospel for the most part at least of his ascending into heaven. We are to think of his being lifted up upon the cross.
0: Amen. Listen to this. It is so good. We talk about the Son of Man being lifted up. He's referring to his being lifted up on the cross. Watch what Pastor Charmley does with this.
4: This is the great contradiction in the face of the world. See, the world thinks of being glorified, and they think of King Herod being lifted up on his throne. They think of Augustus Caesar being lifted up on his throne, Tiberius being lifted up on his throne in his golden robes with a crown upon his head. But when we think of Jesus being glorified, we think of the Son of Man being lifted up on his cross, stripped of his garments with a crown of thorns upon his head surrounded not by adoring crowds of sycophants, but by vicious Roman soldiers, by mockers, with seated at his right hand his left, not the highest men in the kingdom, but two criminals. And thus is the Son of God glorified by being lifted up on the cross to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. And thus you see, thus we rejoice in the cross of Christ. Thus we can say, the cross is that which we glory in, we boast in, we rejoice in. Because by the cross, the Son of Man, the Son of God, takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is glorified in his sacrifice. And so the Lord Jesus Christ bears in his hand and his feet and his side in this very moment in glory the wounds of crucifixion. He bears the wounds. Because you see that death on the cross is his glory. Because there he bore the sins of the world. There he purchased his people back from the tyrant of sin. There, he liberated his people. The Saviour is glorified in that. See, in the past we made statues of generals seated on their horses. Because there, they were glorified. In St. Mary's Church in Shrewsbury, there is a monument to Admiral Benbow. And it shows his warship with its cannon firing. Because by military conquest, Admiral Benbow was glorified. But Jesus is glorified by the cross. And so, that symbol has become the symbol of Christianity because by that he is glorified. The cross is shame to the world but to us it is the Son of Man, the Son of God being glorified. And the news comes that Lazarus has died. And Jesus says, well the news comes to Jesus. Supernaturally, Jesus knows. That Lazarus has died, but nobody else does. And so he says, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And there's a word there for the Christian Christians who die sleep, and Jesus will wake them up. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who have passed beyond the veil, who have passed from this world are sleeping in Jesus and he will wake them up. The body is laid in the grave sleeping in Christ and he, he will wake his dead up. And Jesus says, we go back to Judea and the disciples are amazed. How can he go back to this place where they were trying to kill him? And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. The loyalty of the disciples. They didn't understand what was going on, but they knew this, that this man, this man, Jesus, demanded, commanded such loyalty from them that they would go to die with him. Now of course, when the time finally came, when they were threatened with death, they all forsook him and fled. And they followed him. They followed the lamb. To the place where he was in danger. And so we come to the sorrow. To the bereaved home. Jesus comes. And there are people weeping and wailing. Funerals in the ancient world were very noisy things. You'd have. Pike players. Playing their. Pipes in plaintive tones professional mourners wailing and weeping and we know this because we have the details recorded for us of what a funeral in the ancient world was like and there would be a week of mourning at least and Lazarus was not a poor man so there would be many many people around weeping and mourning incidentally we know he wasn't a poor man because he was buried in a rock-cut tomb in a cave tomb only the rich were buried in tombs like that and Martha comes and says Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died but even now I know that whatever you ask of God God will give you and faith is sometimes staggered by in the face of death how can this have happened and particularly to somebody in this situation when the the hopes of the afterlife and the resurrection were so much more shadowy than they are in the New Testament most of what is said about the resurrection is said in the New Testament not the old the hopes of the Jews were mingled with fears and Jesus said to her your brother will rise again and she said, being an Orthodox Jew, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection the last day. All this sorrow, yes, but I am persuaded that he will rise again. And it's all in, in the abstract, not in the concrete, but Jesus calls to the concrete, not the abstract. Because he says, I am the resurrection and the life resurrection life are not just principles out there to be believed in but a person to be believed in not just principles to be accepted in the mind but a person to be accepted with the heart a person who as he loved so he is loved he whom you love is sick and Jesus says I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Do not think of a principle out there somewhere. The principle of the immortality of the soul. That's what the, the Platonists, that's what Plato called people to believe in. But Jesus says, don't believe in a principle. Believe in me. Not just a principle, but Me. The resurrection and the life. A man is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the answer. And therefore Jesus gives life. And Jesus raises the dead. It is the Lord Jesus who gives hope. There is nothing worse than a funeral without Jesus. Because a funeral without Jesus is a funeral without hope. But where Jesus is there is a promise of resurrection when the Christian is laid in the grave there is a promise as we sang that soon will come the great awakening soon the rending of the tomb that that earth is laid on top of the coffin knowing that the grave will be opened the grave shall be opened And the dead shall rise, and the dead in Christ shall rise to glory, incorruptible, to share his life. Even now, the dead in Christ, their souls are with the Lord. The day will come when they shall fully share the resurrection life that now is his alone. Soon will come the great awakening, and so we come to the word of surprise. The great surprise, Jesus at the tomb, and he comes, verse 38, groaning in himself. Verse 33, groaning, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, literally, the word means he was angry, he was outraged in his spirit. Not angry with the mourners, angry with death and with sin. That this is what sin has done to the world. Look at the death, the suffering, the destruction wrought by sin, and we say, this is what human sin has done. This is what sin has done. This is what Satan has done. For it was Satan who at the first came with the temptation to eat and be like God. This is what the devil has done, and we should be angry with the devil. We should be outraged at the devil, as Jesus was. And there is a sense, you look at the funeral, you look at the family mourning, the loss of a loved one, and there should be anger. That this is what sin has done, and yet also for the Christian there is hope. For we know what God has done in Christ Jesus. And Jesus comes weeping, Jesus wept. He knew what would happen, he knew what he would do, but he knew this also, he knew what he would do in a few days time that he would come and he would die that he would be nailed to a cross that he would have laid upon him the whole guilt of humanity that he would groan under its weight and cry out those words Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani my God, my God why have you forsaken me but he would be surrounded by mockers and scoffers. And even one of the thieves would die penitent. He knew what he would suffer. Suffering that we cannot imagine. We do not know. We cannot tell what pain he had to bear. But we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. He knew what he would do. Not only now in a few days time when he came to be offered to offer himself as a sacrifice once for all for sin and he looked as he came to the tomb he knew that in a few days time he would be laid in just such a tomb and then he commanded the stone to be taken away His body has been dead for four days. Now the Jews wrapped the body in spices. They buried it the same day, on the day day of death. Because in a hot climate, decomposition sets in very, very quickly. So they buried the body as soon as they possibly could. Uh, Yes, there were spices wrapped in there, but still the smell would be terrible. And yet Jesus says, take away the stone. And then he calls out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, you or I could repeat the procedure and nothing would happen. You speak to a dead body and you get no response. But Jesus, he speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. And here is Lazarus stepping forth from the tomb. It would be a difficult walk out of the tomb because they tended to bind the feet, not very tightly, so he'd be able to shuffle out. But still it would be difficult for a man in a shroud to get out of the tomb. And so he says, loose him and let him go. And out he comes. He calls us to believe. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? You see, a failure to believe is what leads to people not seeing the glory of God. There were many, many people who saw the cross. They saw Jesus crucified. And all they saw was a man who had lost But there was that man who hung there beside him who said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Who saw hanging on the cross not a helpless, hopeless man, but a Lord with a kingdom. And he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because he believed. He saw the glory of God where everybody else saw shame. And we see, beyond the cross we see the resurrection. That he who was delivered up to death for our offenses, in our place, was raised again for our justification. To declare all who believe in him righteous, delivered from sin. Jesus was raised again to say the death is paid. The battle won. And so as we see the resurrection we cry hallelujah. Glory to God in the highest. For God in Christ has taken away the sin of his people. Jesus has power over death. Now Lazarus died a second time. He was raised to a continuation of the life he already had. But he points to Jesus. Raised again. Never more to die. To the one who said to John on Patmos. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold I am alive forevermore. The man raised immortal. Raised incorruptible. Here is a man who speaks to us and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. He calls us to look beyond the grave. He calls us to look beyond this present passing world and to say, we shall live again. Now we are told that all shall be raised. But some will be raised to eternal life and some to eternal shame. All who who rise in Christ are raised to eternal life. In the sickness then of Lazarus we see the sickness of this world. This world is passing away. And the cemeteries are filling up. And this world is passing away in all its desires. This world is a place of sorrow because of sin and because of death. And yet Christ came into this world to suffer because of sin and to die because of sin. he came to bear our sorrows, to carry our griefs, to be made an offering. He came to suffer precisely what we suffer for us. And in that he displays his glory. In the sorrow we see the sorrow of death. The suffering of death. In the sorrow we see Jesus' love and compassion to the sufferers. His words of comfort, we see that it was all of love that he came into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And in the surprise we see Jesus' victory over death. That he by death has destroyed him who has the power of death. That he who died and rose again has power over death. And that all who believe in him shall not perish, not everlastingly, but have everlasting life. Because he is the resurrection of the life, all who believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Here is the hope. And there is no hope in death in anyone else. Though there's many people who tell us how to live better lives, And some of them give pretty good advice. Don't get in debt. It's good advice. Don't take drugs or alcohol. That's good advice. Don't smoke. That's good advice. It'll help to improve your life. Don't take unnecessary risks. Don't drive too fast. We don't need a crucified savior for that.
0: Bye. (laughs) Brilliant. We don't need a crucified savior for that. (laughs) Amen
4: am the resurrection, the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. That's what we need to crucify Saviour for. All the self-help books in the world can't tell you to raise yourself from the dead. They could have laid every self-help book ever written in Lazarus' tomb and he'd be there to this day. But the word of Jesus comes. Lazarus comes forth. And Lazarus comes forth. Jesus is the conqueror over death and hell. And in him alone is life. In him alone is life and that life is the light of men. Oh that we may trust in him. Oh that we might die and live. Trust in him who is the resurrection
0: and the life. Amen. Um. Amen. Fantastic sermon. There's no way I can add anything else to that. Just need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know the drill. We depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. There's two friendly yellow buttons there. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. The Join Our Crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, piratechristian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you and the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.